Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I'm Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. On today's pod, Wall Street bigwigs are lining up behind a presidential candidate not named Biden or Trump. Then the Tesla Cybertruck finally begins deliveries today, but do people even want it anymore? It's Thursday, November 30th. Let's ride. For the second straight day, a major American figure has died at an extremely old age. Highly controversial former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who defined U.S. foreign policy in the 70s and the Cold War, critics say for the worse, passed away at 100 years old one day after Charlie Munger died at 99. So this is admittedly a little morbid, but there is a website I check periodically called The Death List, which is an annual list of 50 celebrities that are uh, getting up there in age. From the top 10 in this year's list, we have lost four people. Kissinger, who was number two, Bob Barker, Tony Bennett, and Harry Belafonte. Still kicking at number one, Dick Van Dyke. But from my research, it seems that the once death-defying Kissinger holds the record for most appearances on this list. He has been on it for 11 years. There's a list for everything they say. There's a website for everything. 11 years on the death list. That is a long, it's long impressive. time. So wait, Dick Van Dyke is next Is up. number one. Interesting. He's not next up. <laughs> yeah, right. Necessarily. He is number one. He's number one. Okay, before we jump into the news, we have one last shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Brex. I say one last because today is the last last day of the month so we'll have a new sponsor starting next month i am gonna miss brex it's been fun teaching people about the best spend management platform out there it made me want to start a business just so i could issue corporate cards or manage bill pay with brex neil it's never too late you should totally start that plane watching bar and grill outside of lax you've always wanted to i think it's called uh in and out <laughs> you know what? With Brex on my side, I might just do that. Start a competitor. So we'll miss you, Brex, but it's been a fun ride. One last time, head to Brex.com today to find the spend management solution you've been looking for. All right, Neil, the off-delayed, irregularly shaped, and much maligned Tesla Cybertruck is finally starting deliveries today. And despite the fact that no one really asked for a stainless steel reimagining of the pickup truck, 10 lucky people are reportedly set to receive theirs today. Remember, this thing has been in the works since 2019, but today is a very different world from 2019. Tesla's profit margins are smaller, interest rates are much higher, and Morning Brew has a podcast now. Back in 2019, there were no electric trucks on the market. Now there are three. Back in 2019, the EV market was growing like a weed. Now it's cooling. And all sorts of design defects, mostly stemming from the fact that stainless steel is an incredibly difficult material to build cars with, has led the Cybertruck debut to be more tiresome than triumphant. Still, Neil, Elon has pulled off his fair share of magic tricks in the past. Do you see a future where the Cybertruck becomes a viable, widely used electric vehicle? I don't vehicle? know. I don't know. This is definitely a cursed product. It has been since the beginning. There was a launch event where they threw something at the window to prove that the window would hold up, and it shattered. And I think that's kind of a metaphor for the entire production process. 
here. This is a, this is a car that is a statement car from a design perspective and a build perspective. And I thought this was a really interesting insight brought up by one reviewer. It is a car that you want to have a, take a selfie with. But is it a car that you actually want to own, especially at premium prices? We don't know the price of the Cybertruck because they pulled the, the, the prices from the website a couple years ago because they just couldn't give an estimate. Seems like it's going to be upwards of $50,000 up to up to 90000 So I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't buy it. It doesn't seem like, you know, it doesn't seem like this is what the market wants right now. They want an EV that is affordable and practical, especially with cooling demand for one. So I don't know if they're want to be driving around with like a, a Blade Runner type vehicle. Yeah, the consistent messaging I'm seeing out of Elon and out of Tesla is that Tesla's future won't hinge on the Cybertruck because it is one of those vehicles that is not going to be practical for maybe a wide swath of people. So Musk keeps saying he wants to temper expectations and that the next stage of growth will be uh, kind of uh, propelled by a next-gen vehicle, not the Cybertruck itself. So you never want to see a car release and them say, everyone temper expectations. This is not going to make or break our company. It is more of a novelty item at this point in but time. It seems like they went away from what was working with the Model 3 and the Model Y. That was all about streamlined manufacturing, make it easy, pump out a lot. And they are kind of reverting back to the, what happened with the Model X, which was kind of they threw all of the cool technology that they could and did all this complicated stuff. And Model Model X sales have been basically nothing relative to Model 3 and Model Y. And so they kind of reverted back to the, the worst practices rather than the best practices of what, what was working for them. Yeah, let's get into the production issues because they are plentiful. Stainless steel is brutal to work with. It's heavier than other materials. It doesn't like laying flat. It always tries to kind of curve back up into its more natural shape. In short, it's too tough, too expensive, too heavy compared to what else is out there. Also, must demanded that the exterior be bulletproof, which made Tesla make the exterior thicker steel. And also, this takes very precise manufacturing, and there's a lot of straight edges in this car, so any variations in the material end up, you, you see them. You see them with the visible to the naked eye. So that's why you keep seeing this infamous quote, we dug our own grave mm -hmm. with the Cybertruck that Elon keeps saying because they really did. Let's talk about the competition. You said there were three electric electric pickup trucks on the market. They are the Ford F-150 Lightning. There's one from Rivian, which is an EV truck startup. And there's also a GMC Hummer EV. And you can see why Tesla wants to get into this market because pickup truck sales, trucks in general are one of the fastest growing segments of the vehicle market in 2022, they accounted for 20.5% of new vehicle sales up from around 16% in 2016. So this is a very lucrative market. You, all, you also have very high profit margins uh, within the pickup truck space. So there's only three on the market. So Tesla's not exactly going into a super crowded field, but there will be, I think, 12 relatively soon. So a bunch of automakers from startups to legacy companies are piling into this space because everyone just wants a pickup truck. Yeah, here's how I'd sum it up. It's a big day for people who care about the Cybertruck, but I'm just not sure how many of those people are left out there. That's, that's kind of the, like the vibe I'm getting from that, all this. That's a good sum up. Okay, we are less than a year from the presidential election and one candidate has emerged as the preferred choice for the top cats on Wall Street. 
Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor and UN ambassador. At the DealBook Summit yesterday, JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, who leans Democratic, said that even liberals should throw their weight behind Haley as a Republican alternative to Trump. Dimon has reportedly had multiple calls with Haley and thinks she understands the business world and can get things done. He usually doesn't voice support for specific candidates this early in the process, so his mention of her is a big deal. And Dimon isn't alone. Citadel's billionaire CEO, Ken Griffin, is considering throwing some of his fortune behind Haley. Former Goldman Sachs president Gary Cohn held a fundraiser for her, and Haley scored a major win earlier this week when she secured the support of American for Americans for Prosperity Action, the political action committee led by conservative billionaire Charles Koch. They have raised more than $70 million this year. Bottom line, Wall Street is lining up behind Nikki Haley, and there seems to be a wind at her back. Yeah, it comes down to choosing a candidate that for Wall Street provides a little more stability, therefore being a little better for business. So basically, they're saying when you compare Haley to Trump, we want the more stable, the more, I don't know, rational option, if you will. And so that's why we're seeing kind of this flood of these Wall Street mega donors uh, stepping into her camp, whereas before they had kind of no one had really chosen a, a side as of now. Yeah, so she has laid out her economic policy. It has a lot to do with she wants to do tax cuts and she studied accounting uh, in South Carolina, I think at Clemson, and she's been touting that as sort of a crackdown on this runaway spending that has happened under Biden and Trump. She wants to eliminate the $500 billion in green energy subsidies that has been one of the signature policies of Biden. Biden and Bidenomics. So she's all about reigning in spending. I don't know exactly how you balance a budget when you want to cut taxes at the same time because you need revenue from somewhere, but that remains to be seen, obviously. But she, but Wall Street likes what she, what what she's saying. Uh, she has moderate positions relative to her Republican peers on abortion. So. She's just more predictable, I think, than Trump. And you also have a bunch of other Wall Street people like Bill Ackman, who also leans Democratic, saying, you know, I don't even want Biden. And I think that just reflects the broader American public view, which is anybody but they used to. Yeah, this surprised me. If she can manage to win the GOP bid over Trump, which is a big if. Recent polling shows Haley beating Joe Biden by a margin twice as large as uh, Ron DeSantis. But let's dig into that if a little bit. While DeSantis is losing ground, Haley's polling as second most yeah. popular, but in most head-to-head -head matchups, she's 44 points on average behind Trump. So again, even though you see these Wall Street people throwing their, their hat in the ring and their money, there's still a massive chasm to kind of cross before yeah. you can start challenging This Trump. might be lighting money on fire. Uh, there's seven weeks till Iowa. Seven weeks till Iowa. Okay, I want to talk about what it was like scrolling Instagram yesterday. Everyone listening at home, let me know if this is what your IG stories looked like. Spotify rap, Spotify rap, Spotify rap, someone getting engaged. Spotify rap, Spotify rap, someone's cat, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, Spotify rap dropped yesterday, and it was everywhere as always. People shared their most listened to artists, songs, and podcasts. Whoop, whoop. But the big surprise for this year's edition of Spotify rap was it assigned you a city based on your listening habits. I got Scottsdale, Arizona of all places, but the big ones I saw on social media were Burlington, Vermont, Bozeman, Montana, and Berkeley, California. The seemingly random methodology behind assigning these pretty rogue cities just fed into the viral hype cycle as people posted and gossip about why the heck their musical taste was giving San Luis Bisbo for one reason or another. But I think this is exactly why Spotify rap continues to dominate the recap game. 
technically Apple and YouTube have rewinds of their own, but nothing goes viral quite like Spotify each year. And I think it's because they always add that bit of a wrinkle. Neil, this was also an especially fun Spotify rap season for us because yeah. we got to be on the other side of the equation for the first time. Toby, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say that each year, the, the, this hype builds every year. And you're like, how do they outdo themselves from last year when I thought everyone was talking about it? And each year it builds. And I think it's because they don't rest on their laurels and they don't get satisfied. And they keep adding these new wrinkles and new features. Uh, you talk about the Soundtown thing. No one knows what that means at all. I figured that out that it was like a college town situation where everyone got either Boulder or Berkeley, like the Fort Collins, all the Burlington. I got Burlington. Everyone I know got Burlington. And they didn't even listen to Noah Khan, a famous Vermonter. So I don't know where that came from. But the thing is, it doesn't matter because it got us talking. And for you know at least an hour or two yesterday, everyone here at the office and online was all talking about Spotify Wrapped. And they continue to up their game year after year. It was so funny for me, too, because the way they reveal it to you, they have this song crescendoing one of your songs, and then it shows where my listening habits came from, and then like the beat dropped, and it showed Scottsdale, Arizona, and I literally lost it. So you can just multiply that feeling that I had across everyone doing this, and you can see why it went viral. I also just want to dig into some of our stats because, again, I said it was our first time that we got to be on the other side of a Spotify rap, so just pretty crazy. We were the top 10 podcast for 138000 people the number one podcast for 21,000 people and my favorite part of yesterday was just getting tagged in all the tweets and all the Instagram stories yesterday also seeing what other people listen to around our podcast was fun so thank you to yeah, everyone you. who listened that's pretty cool yeah it's mostly just a big thank you because it you it, when we're sitting in here it's just Neil and I but when we see stuff like these, uh, the outpouring of support from Spotify Wrapped Week, it's been very fun. So thank you to everyone who posted and listened. Okay, but people want to know what your top song was. Oh my gosh. Wait, my top song was Not To Not To from the RRR movie, which was this Bollywood movie that kind of took over Netflix. And I just really liked the vibe of it. And I listened to it 23 times, I think, over the span of two weeks. So that was my top song. Did I don't even remember seeing your stats. I didn't share it, you know. Yeah. I'm not like a big poster. I keep it close. Best. But my top song, I looked at it this morning, was Alone Again Naturally. It's a Gilbert, Gilbert O'Sullivan tune from the 70s. And I saw it on TikTok because this guy played it on guitar. And he was doing a series on the most interesting chord progressions oh. uh, of songs in the 70s and 80s. And I was just mesmerized by this song because it had a, an amazingly complex and interesting chord progression. So I, I was just super mesmerized by it, and I played it forever and I guess nothing else came close had some 1975 also on there and I had a Beach Boys phase this summer so that was my number three we all have the Beach Boys phase all right now before we dig into your musical taste too deep let's take a quick break Welcome to Neil's Numbers, the segment where I share three stats from the week's news that will cause your neurons to light up like the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree. First number is two stock prices. One is less than $15 a share and the other is $157 a share. The first number is Progressive Insurance stock price in 2008 and the second is its stock price now. What was behind the surge? 
No one can say for sure, but execs say it has a lot to do with Flo, the brand's incredibly popular character who premiered in ads in 2008 and is still going strong. The New York Times profiled the actor behind Flo, Stephanie Courtney, and it is chock full of even more crazy stats I'd love to share. One, Progressive spends more on ads in the U.S. than McDonald's, Toyota, or Coca-Cola, and the total media ad spend for the insurance industry is $11 billion, more than what all the top beer brands spend combined. So why does the insurance industry spend so much on marketing? Well, nearly half of the active property and casualty insurance premiums in the U.S. and Canada were sold by just 11 companies. So you've got to find a way to stand out of the pack. And the way insurance companies have been doing this, writes the incredible Katie Weaver, is not by building trust between their customers and local agents, but by successfully ascribing positive characteristics to the fictional characters who anthropomorphize the companies and products in ads. I'm so interested in the animal versus human yeah. spokesperson debate because on the animal side of things, they, they're digital representations. They never age. They never have scandals. But they And they never do anything outside of exactly what you need them to do. But then you have the Jake from State Farms. You have the flow from progressives who more than hold their end against hold their own against Limu the Emu or the Gecko from Geico. So the Aflac Duck. So it is interesting to see the bifurcation between people who decide to kind of trust their brand to a singular person or singular entity like Flo versus someone who just decides let's let's just make a digital animal. Yeah, maybe it I don't think they plan on this. They they kind of test the waters because I think the Aflac uh, no, the gecko was just supposed to be a one run thing and it just caught on with consumers. So they just kept pushing it out. So I, maybe it doesn't matter. It's just kind of what resonates and flow has has resonated. She is I, I encourage everyone to read this about about Stephanie, a very interesting person. She is a comedic actress uh, in Los Angeles who was just doing this, you know, on the doing commercials on the side. Her, she's friends with Kristen Wiig in the same improv troupe. And this just caught on like wildfire. And now she's probably richer than her wildest yeah, dreams. The article said that people speculate that she's probably being paid at least a million bucks a year to start in these commercials, which feels low to me because she's one yeah. of the most recognizable figures in advertising in kind of the, the business landscape right now. And a cool fact is that she kind of talked to Jake from State Farm when he was starting out about what to expect. Uh, you love the mentorship. Okay, my second number is the glow up of mortadella, a meat product from Bologna, Italy that has transformed from modest deli meat to prize centerpiece on charcuterie boards. Exports of mortadella from Italy to the U.S. have jumped from 786 tons in 2019 to 1,200 tons last year, a 52% increase. So what even is mortadella? Traditionally, it is an emulsion of fresh pork combined with fat from the back and throat of the pig. Sometimes you'll see olives, pistachios, or truffled sprinkled in for some extra pizzazz. And unlike salami, prosciutto, or other Italian meats, it is cooked instead of cured, so it's much less salty than those are. In the Renaissance, mortadella reached its peak popularity and was a favorite of families like the Borgias and the Medicis. But as industrialization swept through the food industry, mortadella's status plunged as it was squeezed into a can and shipped around the world like spam. Now, though, chefs are finding creative ways to leverage mortadella, and probably with a little help from TikTok, Americans have developed a taste for it. I always associate mortadella with bologna or spam, which honestly isn't bad in my opinion. Like, I love bologna, but I think that's where it kind of, yeah, lost some of its status. But I'm all the way back in on the fancy ham game. I'm buying stock in ham next year. I think Iberico ham's going to pop off. Costco sells this $100 plus Serrano ham from, ham from Spain that goes viral every couple of years. I do think 
ham is built for like the TikTok culture yeah. because charcuterie boards are built for TikTok culture. So sign me up for whatever mortadella. What is I your favorite buy. cured meat? I, I love I love prosciutto, yeah. first of all. That's just the goat to me. But I was over in Spain last year right. and just ate jamon y queso every single day, and you just, you just can't beat it. <laughs> okay, for my final number, a music record has fallen. Andre 3000's song, I swear I really wanted to make a rap album, but this was literally the way the wind blew me this time. Yep, that's the name of the track. Has appropriately broken the record for the longest-running song ever to hit the Billboard Hot 100. It rings in at 12 minutes and 20 seconds, topping Tool's Fear Inoculum for the title any idea what number three is runaway nope taylor swift's all too well taylor's version which is 10 minutes and 13 seconds a 12 minute song that achieves this level of popularity is unusual the average runtime for the top 10 songs on the hot 100 chart is three minutes and 15 seconds but the renaissance of the really long song might be upon us because the three longest hot 100 hits by runtime were all released since 2019 I listened to it this morning. I had to do my research, and I genuinely enjoyed it. It's calming, yet beneath this kind of soft flute veneer, it's clearly like searching for something. It's not just elevator music. There's a lot more going on to that. And it almost ventures into sonic dissonance at some time. There's a lot of background sounds that don't seem to add up, but it always comes to kind of this satisfying conclusion. And that is only something that you can explore over a long song. So I really did enjoy what... Andre 3000 was, was trying to do. I don't know if that's what he was trying to do, but that's what I took away from it. You know who brought back the long song? Who? Justin Timberlake in 2013 with the 2020 experience. Go look at that album, which is an excellent album. Most of the songs are over seven minutes long. And Mirrors, which a lot of people yeah. know, is eight minutes and four seconds. Justin Timberlake. And Suit and Tie is over seven minutes too, I believe. No, it's five minutes and 26 seconds. But all of those songs on 2020 experience, which are epic in scale, are really long. And I think he kind of brought back the concept of the long song along with maybe like Sufjan Stevens yeah. or some others and making long songs palatable to people again. That's crazy because he also brought sexy back file this next story under news you can use google is set to start purging old gmail youtube and photo data belonging to inactive google accounts beginning tomorrow december 1st if your account has been inactive for at least two years your data could be on the chopping block but here's how to save it if you really want your middle school email address to live on just log on to it or watch a YouTube video, use Google search, do pretty much anything in Google's suite of services while logged in, and you're good to go for at least another two years. The big reason behind this big purge is security. Inactive accounts are way more likely to lack two-factor authentication and thus become compromised. So Google is trying to tidy up its user base to leave it less open to malicious attacks. But there's been a lot of pushback. Emmett Shear, of all people, who was the ill-fated CEO of OpenAI for all of 72 hours, said that deleting old YouTube or blogger content was like, quote, burning the commons. I see it both ways, Neil. Got to clear out the digital trash to prevent it from falling into the wrong hands. But some accounts are tied to old photos, old blog content. This stuff is history. Yeah, it made me uh, think about what my sort of digital organization is like, and I, it is chaos. You know, I'm sure I have so many email addresses from just signing up for one newsletter, getting that one particular promotion. So I need to do that. It's also a good reminder to probably have a local backup of mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff that's on the cloud, because you never know what a particular platform like Google could do with it. So if you have a bunch of photos on Google, which I think I do, uh, it, tied to an account that I definitely use now, but who knows what, what will happen in the future, probably a good idea. You, there's something called Google Takeout, which allows you to export 
uh, your photos and, and other data or download them to a local place. So maybe that's a good idea. It's, it's kind of like a wake up call where right. maybe if you don't have a lapsed Google account, you can still kind of take stock and do some winter cleaning of your digital life. But also inactive accounts are only going to be a more in more and more pressing issue on social media. A 2019 study by the University of Oxford found that dead accounts could outnumber the living on Facebook by 2070. Yeah. Again, 2070 is a little ways down the line, but you, you start to think when all these inactive profiles start building up, the opportunities for impersonation or sending out mass spam emails, you start to figure out why these inactive accounts are such an issue. So I totally see why, why Google is, is doing this, so they don't let bad actors take advantage of it. All right, so just make sure you do this if you have a lapsed Google account by Friday and you want to keep it. Okay, for our final story, I'd like to introduce a new segment called TIL, or Today I Learned. It's Reddit speak for when you learn something truly surprising that you need to share with someone. And today, well, yesterday, I learned that taxi drivers in London who drive these famous black cabs must pass a test called knowledge. And this test is a beast. First introduced in 1865, knowledge requires drivers to learn London's thousands of streets and landmarks within a six mile radius of Sharing Cross, even better than Google Maps. It takes three to four years to master and to pass, you need to go through three different rounds of oral tests where an interviewer will quiz you on the shortest route between any two points in London. And only then can you drive that iconic black cab. So why did knowledge come up? Because because yesterday Uber announced that it will open up its platform to London's Black Cabs next year, a group it's had a very testy relationship with since it broke into the city's market more than a decade ago. There's been both support and pushback to Uber's move given this historic frostiness. So we'll see whether a taxi service that began in 1621 is ready to embrace a 21st century taxi disruptor. Yeah, the knowledge makes <laughs> no logical sense in the modern era because every single driver has an iPhone these days equipped with GPS. You don't need to know every single street in London, but I do think there's a great psychological aspect to it because when you're traveling in London, you know black cabs are extremely knowledgeable about the streets, which helps build trust, which is a very, very important part of kind of crafting a successful city. You need to be able to get around and trust the people that you're in entrusting your life with essentially to to take you around so even though i don't think it makes practical sense anymore it plays a big psychological role in the london taxi cab system i think it's good to know your way around imagine there's like you know this happens in new york city a long time a lot of times where you're on a street google maps is telling you to go a particular place but it's either closed or there's a garbage truck blocking the way and you need to know your way around in new york city it's pretty easy because it's a grid and it's pretty clear where you should go but in london it is very complicated uh there's a lot of winding streets and and pa narrow passageways so I think it's pretty freaking cool. I've absolutely noticed a difference because you can call a taxi in New York using the Uber app as well, and I have done that. And the biggest difference between a taxi and an Uber driver to me is an Uber driver looks specifically at the dot and will just pull you to wherever the dot is on their screen they don't look at the uh, at the actual numbers of the buildings, whereas the taxi cab driver has their head up. They are going to drop you if you say 373, blah, blah, blah. They will take you to 373 versus any dot. So I'm actually totally on side of the knowledge on on preserving like the, the lost art of knowing yeah, your way around I the city. I love that. Yeah. I love knowing my way around. Um, so we'll see what happens with Uber. I mean, there's been a lot of pushback from the Licensed Taxi Drivers Association. They kind of have this reputation they want to uphold, and they, mm -hmm. see, they see Uber as as disrupting that there was a, a hilarious quote from the general secretary of this 
Taxi Drivers Association saying that we have no interest in sullying the name of London's iconic world-renowned black cab by aligning it with Uber, which has a poor safety track record. So they're kind of there's a lot of pushback, but kind of like we were talking about earlier this year with Domino's going on the third-party delivery apps, it might just lead to more business. So maybe some of these cabbies will be like, you know, maybe I'll just drive for Uber too, and you know, more more money in my pockets better than whatever reputation uh, these black cabbies have. I think more money always will end up winning at the end. It's just more convenient too. You got a steady stream of Uber drivers versus drive around looking for someone. It's, I just don't know. We don't know like what what it's like over there. I mean, I haven't been to London in a while, but it seems like they take their, their they take taxi seriously. driving yeah, seriously. As they should. Okay, we've got to wrap it up there. Hope everyone has a great Thursday. I know we don't do fast week, slow week anymore, but I'm just going to put it out there. Very fast week. If you want to reach us, send an email with thoughts, questions, concerns, admiration to Morning Brew Daily at morningbrew.com. Let's roll the credits. Emily Milliron is our editor and producer. Samantha Velas and Raymond Liu are associate producers. Yuchenna Waogu is our technical director. Billy Menino is on audio. Hair and makeup is studying for knowledge. Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back tomorrow.